So most of you guys know that Rachel and I are both gardeners, right? That's one of the things that we enjoy doing together. Rachel generally does all the veg, and I stick to the flowers, so we've got a little delineation there. And this year, in one of her raised beds, Rachel incorporated a technique that was developed by First Nations people called the Three Sisters. And that's a combination of growing corn and beans and squash together in the same area. And we actually had a really abundant bean harvest this year. In fact, Rachel was like, getting a bunch of them yesterday, so we had more green beans last night. So there's a botany professor named Dr. Robin Wall Kimmerer. Um, she's a botany professor as well as a member of the Potawatomi Nation. And she wrote this beautiful book called Braiding Sweetgrass that we read in one of our church book groups this last year. And in that book, uh, she's like weaving indigenous wisdom that's been passed down for centuries about the natural world with her scientific training. And in one chapter, she talks about the three sisters, and she talks about how there's a lot of different stories about the three sisters among the various tribes. And in one of those stories, she says it's like the middle of winter, and the people of a tribe are going hungry because there isn't enough food to sustain them from the last harvest. And so one snowy night during this really harsh winter, three women came to visit the tribe. And even though the hosts didn't have enough food left, they were generous with what they did have, and they shared it with those three guests. And then in gratitude for the selflessness of the hosts, the three women then revealed themselves and they gave their names, corn, beans, and squash. And then they offered a bundle of their seeds to the people so that the tribe would never go hungry again. Right, and so stories like these are meant to help pass down knowledge. Right? They say, we know that these three crops grow well together and they can be stored so that they can prevent starvation. And so that method of growing the three sisters was widely used actually throughout much of the eastern United States um, and actually all through North America, from Ontario all the way down to Florida at the time that the European colonizers arrived. And the Europeans were so used to segregating their crops and like planting them in rows, like we do, right? You got your corn in a row and you got your bean field and those are all in a row. And so they looked at the agricultural practices and they judged them as inferior because they looked messy. But science is now revealing what the native nations have always known, that these plants actually have a symbiotic relationship that allows them to grow together and it provides essential nutrients that humans need to survive. So how, after planting, how this works is the corn, it sprouts up first. And it shoots straight up and it focuses all its energy on height. Right? And then come the beans. And the beans start kind of low and they start with their leaves just kind of coming out. And you know how beans get, if you've ever grown green beans or any kind of beans, they, they start to you know, get these big, long strands that come out from them. But they only start to develop those um, when the corn is strong enough to start to support them. And then the little tips of those bean stems, which are driven by hormones, they can actually kind of dance around up to a meter a day, actually just looking for something to land on, right? Whether that's a fence or, in this case, a corn. And then they just sort of wind their way around it in this embrace. And if the corn doesn't shoot up enough early on, the beans would overpower it and strangle it. But as it usually happens, the corn is robust enough by that point to handle the beans, and then that keeps the beans off the ground, where they'd be more susceptible to be eaten by critters. And then the squash germinates last. Right, so while the beans and the corn are rising skyward, the squash starts to spread out low on the ground. 
So our squash didn't produce quite as well this year, and I tried to bring in a big squash leaf for those of you who maybe haven't seen one, but it, it wilted on the way in. But they're huge, and it's hard to explain just like how long and thick these stems get, and they just go all over the garden. And so I actually get in a little bit of trouble when I go into the garden and I'm trying to get some herbs or tomatoes for dinner because I accidentally step on them, and uh, then I have to apologize. <laughs> Um, but the, the squash just kind of go everywhere. And the way that they help is they lock the moisture into the ground and they also keep some of the critters away. Because when I actually went to, to pick this this morning, I remembered like, oh yeah, squash have pricklies all the way down them. And so all of those got in my hand and now I can touch it because it's smooth again. But squash is really untidy. But these three crops also work together well under the ground. Right, so corn has really shallow roots, and so it takes some of the water off of the top, and then once they've had a drink and the water goes down, then the beans can have their drink, and then the squash, you know, their strategy is to spread out so that they're like drinking from a different cup, so to speak. And all three of these crops need a lot of nitrogen. You know, when farmers and gardeners rotate crops, it's usually because there's a nutrient or two that gets depleted from the soil. But beans have a really special relationship with a certain bacteria, and it makes them like nitrogen-producing machines. And they're so good at making it that they can actually supply all three of those crops with what they need. Now, I tell you about the three sisters because I think they provide a really simple picture of a symbiotic relationship. Right? Each one of these crops depends on the other to thrive and works together, just as they depend on humans to plant them, and then humans have depended on them to provide the nutrients needed to survive many harsh winters over the centuries. And in our faith tradition, we also see this relationship of mutuality between humans and nature and the Creator. Right? This idea of a symbiotic relationship is very much part of our faith, but you know, sometimes layers of cultural influences in time, they start to distort our understandings of this. And one of our distorting lenses that's crept into our faith, largely through Greek and Roman influences, and even more so during the Enlightenment, is the idea that humans stand above nature, right? That we stand at the top of the created order, or sometimes it's pictured as the center of the creation, and that we exercise dominion over it. And that idea primarily comes from a misreading of Genesis 1 to 3. So in Genesis chapter 1, you know, we've got the, the first story of the creation of humans, and it says this, right after God makes the humans, God says, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue or have dominion over it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it and they will be yours for food. Right? And so from that, this idea of subduing the earth or of ruling over its creatures and having dominion or domination over nature sprouted. But I think to take that idea and then just run with it based on those few verses actually ignores the next two chapters and quite a lot of the rest of the Hebrew texts. Right? There are two distinct creation stories in Genesis. And this first one, it highlights the freedom of the humans right? to eat and to rule and to move about. And that freedom is like our badge of distinction in that story. But then in the second story, as Genesis 2 moves into chapter 3, we see that story wrestling with the idea that human freedom might actually be the source of all of our troubles, right? As the serpent tempts the humans into disobeying God. And the question is, maybe we can't be entirely trusted 
with that kind of authority. Right? The text isn't meant to like, lay out some sort of linear account of a creation story, but rather it's eliciting questions. And in this case, the question is, is human freedom and our ability to reason and rationalize, is that a gift or a curse? Does giving humans a lot of power over the natural world, does that lead to its flourishing or to its destruction? Right? And that's a provoking question that's, I think, meant to help us consider our role. Right? Is our ability to think the way we do, is that a help to nature or a hindrance, or is it both? Right? That doesn't have to be a binary answer, and I think that can go either way. So Dr. Ronald Simpkin, he's a Hebrew theology professor at Creighton Seminary. I've recently been reading one of his books. Uh, he points out that humans were never given unbridled authority over nature in the Bible. He said there were always limits to it. Right? The Genesis 1 story says that God gave humans plants to eat, but they were designated for food. And he says animals were acceptable later on as food, and even then there were a lot of boundaries that were placed around that as to what kinds of animals were eaten and how, right? There were always restrictions. And he writes, he says, human dominion does not encompass the climate, water resources, natural processes. Those belong to the creator, which we see echoed in the Psalms and in the book of Job. Right, in a few chapters at the end of Job, um, actually, Hannah read a little bit of that this morning. There's a lengthy bit where God asks Job things like, who are you, O human? Did you create thunder and lightning? Did you create the sea? No? Then who are you to pretend to be in charge? Right? And whenever this idea of human domination peeks its head out in the Hebrew Bible, it's fairly quickly checked Right, with that same sort of check that Genesis 2 to 3 provides Genesis chapter 1. Right, Psalm 8, the psalmist here is speaking to God. The psalmist says, What are human beings that you're mindful of them, mortals that you take care for them? Yet you've made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor, and you've given them dominion over the works of your hands, and you put all things under their feet. So that seems to refute what I just said, right? They're reiterating that dominion. But that's followed in the very next psalm with, rise up, O Lord, don't let mortals prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Let the nations know they're only human. Right? So the overarching themes of the Hebrew scriptures point to, I think, not a human-centric creation, but a God-centered or even an eco-centered creation, which I didn't put this in my notes, but as I was setting up our icon of St. Francis this morning, that was one of St. Francis's um, sort of theological strands that he was known for, this idea of an ecocentric creation. And we look at the fruit of placing humans at the center of creation. It's called anthropocentrism. Right? The fruit of putting us at the center of creation has been the ongoing destruction of the world's biodiversity in the name of money, mostly. Right? And so seeing what this view of humans has produced, there's a strong move among theologians to like, correct this misunderstanding that's crept into the Western theological tradition, right? that humans are not the center with the freedom to just use and abuse nature, but rather our stories tell us that the creator is at the center and we're in a symbiotic relationship with the creator and with the creation, right? that nature takes care of us and we in turn take care of nature. And I think on the most practical level, we do this and we practice this like in our own yards if we have the privilege to have any land. And we do it with our, our houseplants and with our pets, right? We experience that symbiotic 
relationship, that we care for them and they care for us. And so that's something to maybe think about the next time you're maybe outside enjoying nature, maybe you're cuddling with your dog or your cat or your rat, in Avery's case. Just think about how the dirt and the trees and the cats and the rats are embracing and nurturing you as well. And then feel that reciprocity, right? That, that sort of mystical dance of belonging together. We close with a quote from Robin Wall Kimmerer. She says, if there's a lesson that we can learn from the three sisters, it's that we should respect one another, support one another, bring your gift to the world, and receive the gift of others, and then there will be enough for all. So with that, we'll have a moment of meditation. We often do a minute or two of just silence or of guided meditation. And I'm just gonna invite us to um, just picture a place in nature that feels really healing or welcoming to you. And then when you're in that space, maybe we can just concentrate on that verse where it says the creator took the human and put them in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. Right? And then think about sort of our obligation or our responsibility to those spaces. So get yourself comfortable and we'll just sort of let ourselves be in that space and think about that symbiotic relationship and I'll let you know when the time is up. Come Holy Spirit. So creator, when we thank you for the world around us, and I ask maybe even especially in this time of sort of just ongoing corporate stress, that we would feel embraced by the nature that's around us, um, that we would feel nurtured by the trees and the rivers and the different trail paths that we take if we run or hike. We ask, Lord, that we would just experience that, that mystical oneness of creation and that we would feel taken care of in the same way that we take care of the world around us. We thank you for your presence in the divine. You know, just as you were in a burning bush and just as you've been seen as part of like a bird and in the animal creation, we ask, God, that we would experience you throughout this earth temple. Ask that you would help us to take care of it and feel embraced. Amen.